This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today is Lucille Bruce. Lucille Bruce is, has deep roots, deep background in organizational change. She was the executive director of Village Clinic, the interim chair of the Manitoba Urban Native Housing Association, and she was recognized for her work with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. She's also established the infrastructure and partnerships to implement Housing First, which is a best practice to improve the lives of people with histories of homelessness and mental health issues. She now is the president and CEO of End Homelessness Winnipeg. That is a deep background, deep roots in organizational change. Welcome to Humans on Rights, Lucille Bruce. Thank you so much, Stuart. I'm happy to be here. So, Lucille, why are you so passionate about making people's lives better? Um, it brings me to my roots. Um, I uh, grew up in a very small Métis community that is located an hour from Winnipeg. And I grew up in a family that um, was had 11 siblings. Grew up in a community that also grounded me in my Métis culture, also growing up, was exposed to some of the racism, although perhaps not personally directed at me because I'm not so visibly Indigenous, but certainly directed at my cousins and my relatives growing up, particularly from, um, you know, in a community where it was uh, very clear when we uh, would do extracurricular activities and go out to different communities close by where we were visibly different and, and called names. Luckily, because I grew up in a community that was largely Métis, I also in some ways felt insulated from that type of racism within my own community. I grew up very much being very strong in my roots and my culture. And also my my parents embedded in me a real sense of community and having to to be part of it and, and nurture relationships and and caring and support for others who were perhaps a little bit more disadvantaged than than we were. Although we certainly grew up being very poor in my family, but we were extremely loved and cared for. We grew up with a sense of of justice as well, understanding that uh, If we had, we needed to share that with others. And I think that's what brought me to where I am. 
I basically struggled. I was a single parent as well. Mm-hmm. Grew up experiencing a lot of barriers and and violence, and I quickly knew as a single parent that education was key for me. I'm pleased to say that my first job as a young woman that was very naive had never really uh, been exposed to the big city. When I first came to the big city at the age of 18, and with child, the Manitoba Métis Federation gave me my first job. And again, that also provided me with and insulated me also from experiencing a lot of potential racism in the workplace and all of that. I was supported because, you know, I worked for the Manitoba Métis Federation and again grew to understand the historical sort of uh, impact that the Métis people experienced in, in terms of the whole uh, script process and the whole disenfranchisement and loss of, of land. So, Lucy, let me just kind of back up for one second. So, you are living in a small community, 11 siblings in your, so you've got a good family, uh, which is great. And it sounds like very grounded in love at some point. It's not about the money, it's about the love in the home. And it sounds like that was amazing. At what point did you think that you would have to leave that community to come to another? In this case, it was Winnipeg. Did that sort of, was there a, something that just made you make that decision? How did you arrive in Winnipeg? It was the fact that I, um, I had my daughter mm-hmm. at a very early age. And I knew if I were to be able to be successful and ensure that she didn't have a life of poverty, I had to move into the big city. Right. I had to to be able to find a job to support myself and my daughter, as well as pursue education. You know, it's tough enough for for people to, you know, try to find what they want or what they're interested in from an educational standpoint. But now you're a single parent, single mother, um, with a daughter, and you're now looking at trying to get yourself educated. H- how did you balance all of that? It was extremely challenging, uh, for sure. Luckily, because I was working at the MMF at the time, the Land Claims Commission, I had a supervisor who told me about a program in Brandon that was offered to mature and Indigenous mature students. He brought that to my attention because he knew I wanted to pursue higher education. He said he would support me through through that process, and I applied. I was <laughs> I succeeded in in uh, getting selected for that program, and uh, the following year I started going into uh, Brandon University to pursue a Bachelor of of Nursing degree. I actually ended up graduating 
with a degree in education at the University of Manitoba. I did not continue the Bachelor of Nursing degree, but they offered to transfer me to University of of, uh, Manitoba to pursue a Bachelor of Education. And I want to share with you, Stuart, that, you know, growing up in a small Métis community, we had no role models at all because the majority of of, uh, families there and my relatives were all poor. We didn't have anybody to follow suit in terms of aiming for higher education or even for opportunities to become doctors, uh, lawyers, uh, and all of those kinds of careers. What we saw growing up and what I saw as a woman, I could become a teacher or I could become a nurse or I could become a nun. Mm, Right. That was my reality and my world at the time. When I was able to apply, you know, through that mature program that was being offered through Brandon University, of course, I applied to become a nurse because Mm -hmm. that's what I knew. Right. And why did you switch from that to education? It's interesting. I learned pretty quick after my second year, and, and that's when I was actually doing the clinical practice in a hospital, that nursing was not my choice. I respected my coworkers and my my friends that I had made in terms of their choice to continue pursuing the nursing field. But I felt I needed to really veer off into education. And that was my interest, really, to be an educator then I was offered that opportunity to transfer at U of M. And it was not an easy decision for me to make because I knew that Brandon University versus University of Manitoba, there was a huge difference there in terms of numbers of people who attend that university, class sizes. And I was really worried that I would potentially get lost there. Mm. But again, I was offered to transfer into the access program at University of Manitoba, where again, there was that wraparound support that was offered to me. And I quickly adjusted and adapted and thrived in that environment. And Lucille, at that point, are you sort of thinking that you're going to, you talked about some of the three elements, clearly you're not going to be a nun at this point and you've tried nursing. And so you've got one option, which is to uh, education. Did you have a sense at that point when you made that switch to the University of Manitoba of what, how you were going to use your degree in education? Did you kind of have a path in your mind at that point or what, what were you thinking at that time? I wanted to work with adults, preferably. And when I graduated, I ended up with the opportunity to be hired uh, at the Winnipeg Education Center. Again, another program that provided mature students from diverse cultural groups with an opportunity to um, obtain 
either a uh, post-secondary degree in education or social work. And interestingly, it was the social program, uh, program that hired me as a counselor slash pre-university prep instructor. So I began to work there with adult students in the social work program from diverse groups, uh, mainly mature students, as I'm, I mentioned. I just absolutely loved my work and continued working there for three years until I was approached by uh, then the executive director of Native Women's Transition Center, Josie Hill, and she's a well-known, respected Indigenous leader in, in the urban Indigenous community, who approached me to see if I would be willing to apply for a job to become the new executive director of Native Women's Transition Center, which was a transitional house for women, Indigenous women, who had experienced all kinds of traumas, had experienced family violence in their lives, had lost their children to the child welfare system, and were struggling with a lot of issues, including uh, some mental health and addiction issues. So when she approached me to take on that job, I absolutely loved the work that I was doing at Winnipeg Education Center Social Work Program. When she approached me and spoke to me about this, I knew nothing about that organization and what they did and the kind of work they did. But after I hung up that phone, I remembered a dream that I had had. The dream was very vivid to me. I was walking through a path in the forest and someone came along and said, oh, Lucille, don't go in that direction. No, don't go there. there. And I said, why not? And they said, no, no, there's, there's uh, women there. And I can't remember exactly, but it was like, it, it's not good there. And I said, no, I'm going to walk there and I want to see for myself. So I walked into that wooded forest and there was a clearing. And suddenly I was surrounded by women. I looked at the women and some of the women had sores on their arms, on their breast, and on their hands. And I went up to one and I said, there's healing for that. There's medicine for that. And, and so that dream came to me suddenly and I said, okay, creator, if this is where you want me to go, this is where I will go. I submitted my resume and wouldn't you know it, I was hired. And Stuart, I stayed there as executive director of Native Women's Transition Center for over 20 some years. So now, Lucille, 
when you're looking at how you describe the dream, I mean, it's so vivid and it's pretty clear it gave you the right direction, thank goodness. But when you look at sort of your history, you talked about the fact that you come from a, a Métis family and that's sort of where your roots are. Did any of that form your decision? Was it important to you that you were working with other Indigenous women in this particular case, or do did that matter to you at all? I'm just trying to get a sense, you know, how, how much you, because I think that's been the journey that you're on. And when we talk about some of the things that you're currently working on, you've been very, very focused with your, with your personal journey. Yes, very much so. It did, it did bring home that this was the place I was meant to go, particularly because, as I said, the majority of the women uh, coming to uh, the transition center uh, were women who were First Nation and Métis, who had multiple barriers, who, many of whom were single parent moms like myself, many who uh, had lost their children to the child welfare system and were struggling you know, to to get their children back and needed the support and the advocacy, you know, in order to, to achieve their goals and also needed healing based on culturally relevant approaches. I had begun my journey of understanding traditional ways of healing and ceremonies and practices already before I came to Native Women's Transition Center. And it really grounded me in terms of the importance of how it is critically important when we're working with Indigenous people to ensure that uh, they have access to culturally relevant Indigenous healing and practices, and that includes ceremonies. It's important because of the whole historical trauma uh, piece that has been experienced by, by Indigenous people in the last 150 years. Lucille, you know, you mentioned ceremony, which, you know, is I've had a number of conversations with knowledge keepers and other people involved in, in, in traditional ceremony. Is that something you learned or how did you come across or how did you, how were you able to sort of be a part of that? How did you find yourself being kind of in that? I don't even want to choose the words because I want them to be your words, but that you would be part of ceremony, helping uh, these incredibly challenged women to, to be there for a life support for them. It is something that I learned, but there some of it was innate in the bloodstream, in, in the in the blood already. The, they call they call the blood memory. And why I say that is because with me, there's been significant dreams that I've had, even as a young girl, that you know, has provided me with direction. And I've trusted that you know, throughout my growing up years. And don't forget, I grew up in my community too, where my uh, fathers and and my uncles and my relatives all practice traditional, how can I say, traditional living 
So mm-hmm. they they trapped, they hunted. Right. We did things together. So it was very land-based kind of livelihood as well. I grew up really very much being part of that outside environment too. So there's a close connection there as well. But when I started my work at Winnipeg Education Centre with the social work program, I met there an incredible Métis woman uh, that was very much into the holistic traditional ceremonial practices and she took me on as a uh, as a mentee and she brought me to ceremonies and she taught me about the traditional ways i'm quite honored to say that i was named by her i have a traditional name and my traditional name is maskiki mahingan which is Medicine Wolf. Medicine Wolf? Yes. In what dialect or language would that be? That is Cree. Yes. And she was Cree yeah. Métis. So she was an incredible mentor to me. Her name was Ann Charter. And uh, she was a professor of social work. And she actually was the founding. Uh, she founded the School of Social Work in Thompson. And so she was my mentor. I began to really uh, grow into understanding that importance of rootedness in understanding who I was and understanding how those ceremonies were critically important in assisting people to heal from their trauma. So, Lucille, that, that's a, um, you think about the, the your over 20 years being a part of that. Um, I mean, that's an emotional journey for you personally, clearly. I know just uh, listening to you that you've had a tremendous positive impact on some of these women and how mm-hmm. that's worked. And I mean, that has to be very, very satisfying. And uh, just as I said at the top of this uh, conversation that you, uh, you're somebody who's very passionate about helping people. When you look at that part of your life, which is a substantial time, how did that help you sort of move to the next phases of your, of your career? Because you've developed many things, including uh, the Housing First initiative, which, uh, which is an important initiative. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, In my work at the Transition Centre, as I mentioned, women came there and many of them were homeless. Uh, They had lost their children to the system. And when you lose your children to the system, the system then doesn't continue funding you for your home, right? So there's kind of a, a real cycle there. Women often lose their children to the child welfare system. Then they lose their income to maintain their home. And then they can't get their children back because they have no home, suitable home, right? To to get their children back. So there's a vicious, vicious cycle there. And so I grew to understand the complexities of 
how systems impose barriers on on women, uh, particularly Indigenous women, and how we needed to look at advocating and changing those systems, because very often those systems were creating inflows into homelessness. Again, was approached by the Canadian Mental Health Association uh, to become the co-site coordinator for the at-home Chiswa five-year research demonstration project that they were rolling out across five cities in Canada. And Winnipeg, of course, was chosen as one of the sites because of the large Indigenous population. And so I was approached to be one of the a co-site mentor because of all of my experience. So again, you know, I felt, okay, maybe this is timely. You know, I'm being approached here again to take on some very interesting, exciting and challenging work. So I trusted again that this was the place where I was meant to be. And and so I was hired as one of the co-site coordinator on, on this research demonstration project that looked at housing first as a new approach to addressing homelessness. And it was a very simple approach, right? So you give somebody that's homeless a place to call home and you house them and provide wraparound support to maintain their housing stability. And once they stabilize, then you begin to work based on their own sort of direction of where they want to go, whether it's to look for uh, job training or whether it's to deal with maybe some addiction issues that they may be having. But the first most important thing is to provide them with a home to stabilize. Right. And, And then the team works with them on addressing the other issues that maybe is is keeping them sort of at risk of falling back into homeless. But it's all driven by the person. They lead that process. So I was really super excited to be part of this. And in Winnipeg, it quickly became apparent that if we were going to move in that direction and the housing and, and the Indigenous urban service providers had made it quite clear that it had to be Indigenous-led. Indigenous services had to be part of that project if it was going to succeed in Winnipeg. And it was a, a really important decision to roll that out in Winnipeg because, as you know, 70% of the population who are homeless, two-thirds are Indigenous in Winnipeg. So the Indigenous community quickly stepped up and said, you're not going to do this unless we are part of it. 
And that was the reason why I was brought in also as a co-site coordinator. And it was also now the focus of who we would bring in to pilot Housing First because we wanted to make sure that we also integrated the whole Indigenous cultural piece into the Housing First model. And we did that in Winnipeg. So let me just interrupt you for one second, because I so th- just get a sense that of the five sites across Canada, Winnipeg would have its own uniqueness because of rolling it into sort of the Indigenous community and having that leadership group being a part of the decision-making process. Correct. Yeah. The Indigenous community clearly told the Mental Health Commission of Canada, if you're going to roll this out, then it needs to be Indigenous-led with Indigenous services that you pilot this housing first. And and so we did that. We did that very uh, well in Winnipeg. And so, Lucille, uh, now we're, I'm, I'm imagining that this is now broaden from just women to include men and other members of community so is that uh, is that a fair assessment and how how did the that the whole housing first um at home chiswa project wasn't women specific it was Got to it. address the needs of people who were chronically homeless right and and so it was open to to all uh, adults who were chronically homeless. The important piece here was that the Indigenous community said, we need to be part of this piloting. It shouldn't be led by mainstream organizations. It needs to be led by Indigenous services in Winnipeg. And so, Lucille, how would you say, has it worked in how you envisioned it to work, or is it working in how you envision it to work? I mean, it's obviously a process and it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And I don't mean it that way. But on the on your assessment, are you are you pleased with how things are starting to come together? If I and pleased is my word, not your word. Maybe you could tell me how you feel about it. Uh, in terms of the housing first program, yeah, I can tell you, Stuart, that uh, we are the only cities that continue supporting the three original. Housing First program that we piloted under that at-home Chiswa research demonstration project. We were the only city that continued supporting those three programs, which to me was incredible because they were successful. I mean, they were successful at housing people. They were successful at keeping people housed. There was a lot of lessons learned along the way, a lot of things that had to be changed in addressing uh, the needs of, of people. And But I think it was a huge success in Winnipeg. And currently to date, uh, there are, I believe, 10 Housing First programs that operate in Winnipeg that provide wraparound support, including youth housing services programs. They've changed considerably uh, from the original sort of at-home Chiswa project ones, but they continue to provide valuable 
supports to this day to youth as well as to adults who are experiencing chronic homelessness. And so now, Lucille, you are currently the president and CEO of End Homelessness Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. Tell me, how do those two programs, Housing First and Homelessness Winnipeg, how how do those two programs, are they tied together? Are they, what, what, is there a big difference? What, Tell me about how those programs have evolved or how do they work together? I'm currently the CEO and president of End Homelessness Winnipeg. And again, I go back, I was approached to take this on again, Stuart. So it seems like that's a path, the way that I've approached my life and, and trusted that I'm meant to go where I I'm, am needed. Right. When I took over as CEO of End Homelessness Winnipeg almost three and a half years ago now, I was uh, brought in and my role was to ensure that End Homelessness Winnipeg provided leadership in implementing the 10-year plan, which is Winnipeg's plan to end homelessness. We also were to provide backbone supports to assist our uh, collective homelessness partners and stakeholders uh, to um, coordinate services and, and work on a common agenda from shifting from managing homelessness to ending it. If I can say, uh, going back even for the last 15 years, the way that we were addressing homelessness in Winnipeg was very much from a managing, managing focus. So what I mean by that is we were very focused on emergency responses, right? Needing to more additional shelter space, needing to provide a lot more services. And, and it was not necessarily looking at the bigger picture and sort of focusing more on longer term solutions in terms of addressing homelessness. And that is by housing people, right? right. Giving people their own home and providing that wraparound support and service so people can be stably housed and they can continue functioning and they can continue sort of their healing journey and, um, you know, looking at reaching their full potential, whatever that may be. And we really weren't looking also at the whole prevention side of things. And that's so critically important, looking at the whole prevention side, because, you know, the analogy that I can give there is, you know, if you have a a river and a stream and you keep dumping people at this end, right, and catching them at the top, uh, the top end, the upstream end, and trying to rescue them, it's going to continue happening unless you deal with right. where you start off, where the inflow is, 
and stop that inflow. And so we've began now to do that work with our homelessness serving partner. And 15 years ago, people were very much still working from a siloed approach. And end homelessness was established in 2015. And as part of our work in implementing the 10-year plan, we said we needed to work from a collaborative approach, but also a collective impact approach, recognizing that homelessness is very complex and that we needed to work together collectively as a community to address uh, ending homelessness, which means we needed to work with all stakeholders, including all of our homelessness serving partners, including the three big shelters, as well as working with all three levels of government and private sector, uh, getting them on board as well to work with us in addressing homelessness. And that's looking at key priority areas, including the building of housing supply, because we definitely don't have enough housing supply right now to meet the various needs of the people who are experiencing homelessness. Particularly, we need low barrier housing. What do you mean by low barrier housing, Lucia? What I mean by low barrier housing is housing that will work from a harm reduction approach. And it means that there's no requirements for people to be sober, to live in that housing, or to not be using drugs. It's working from a harm reduction approach. And and so you house people, you provide that wraparound team that works from that harm reduction trauma approach, and you ensure that you lessen the harm for people. Uh, and, And so that's critically important for people who are still using and struggling with addiction issues. And and how would you say, Lucille, when you look at sort of this 10-year plan, how would you say you're feeling that you're progressing along with the goal to end homelessness in Winnipeg? How are you feeling about that? I, I'm going to be very honest with you and say we are just at the starting phase of it. Things are now beginning to change. And I think, as I mentioned to you, 15 years ago, services were very much working in silos. Now, more recently, particularly, I think, uh, because of the pandemic and homelessness, uh, when, when the pandemic hit in March and we went through a lockdown, and homelessness Winnipeg, took on a coordinating role with all of our homelessness-serving sector, as well as with public health and health, and the other levels of government, the city and, and the province, to coordinate 
uh, a response and ensure that we were addressing the needs of people who were experiencing homelessness during this pandemic. So we took on that coordinating role. And um, we also uh, administer the uh, federal funding for reaching home. And, and that's the federal homelessness funding. We now administer that funding. And as part of that, we also had to administer COVID response funding that the federal government allocated for us to administer. And we had to do that very quickly. Uh, the first round uh, very early in, uh, in April, uh, we administered $2.7 million of COVID response funding. And we worked closely with our homelessness sector partners to and shelters to tell us where were the emerging needs, what were the emerging needs, what did we have to fund to be able to keep people who were homeless, uh, who were homeless and not housed safe during this pandemic. So we relied a lot on our partners to identify those emerging issues that we knew needed to be addressed, especially with the public health directive orders that were given during a code red, which meant that shelters now had to implement all of those uh, physical distancing orders to keep people safe within those congregate sites. And, and that meant a reduction of space, right? right? And so then we had to uh, also work with the province to fund other shelter space in order for the shelters to be able to provide overnight space for people who had no homes. And then I guess when you add on sort of the, the, the classic sort of prairie winter, we've got some pretty cold evenings. And the cold. Absolutely. And we had to look at that too, which we were, we were very grateful that we received a second round of COVID response funding. And this time it was much more significant because they had predicted the second wave in the fall. And we received, I believe it was $7.9 million to administer to all of our our homelessness serving agencies that were providing incredible services at this time to keep people safe, to ensure people had access to uh, to food, uh, to uh, uh, to ensure that uh, the shelters and the services had access to PPE to continue providing services to people during this pandemic. Having said all of this, in our role coordinating this, we quickly learned that, hey, as a community, we can really work together and look at what we can accomplish when we do work together in a collaborative way, getting rid of our silos and sharing our knowledge, our wisdom, and and our, our lessons learned 
to ensure that we roll out and implement um, services to, to house people during this pandemic and to keep people safe. It was an incredible learning experience, I believe, uh, not just for hand homelessness, but for our sectors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that came together and worked so yeah. well and uh, provided critical services during this time. They did incredible work. So Lucille, one of the things when I asked you about where you felt things were along with this 10-year plan, and you said you think we're just getting started, I think that is, um, really, there's no surprise there. People that write a 10-year plan, I mean, they're, they're doing it to the best information they have. Nobody thought about COVID. Nobody thought about some of these other elements. And so you're, you're, you're kind of sharing with us how things have come together. And it sounds like that it's a very, very, um, a much more uh, cohesive, you know, people working together. If I were to ask you, what would be your most so far in terms of this journey that you're on as the president and CEO of End Homelessness Winnipeg? What would be your your proudest moment so far to date? I think my proudest moment right now is the fact that we've now are working with over 69 agencies on various committees addressing various issues that will result in, I believe, moving forward on addressing homelessness in the next four to five years. I believe that the community now is at a place where they've come to understand that if we truly are going to address homelessness, then we we have to make that system transformation shift from managing to looking at ending it, which means we need to work at integrating the, the whole prevention aspects of that, stopping the inflow at the system level, as well as changing our focus to housing people. And and that's critically important. I know currently that the shelters now are beginning to have those conversations, how they're going to move people out of those shelters as quickly as possible and, and house them. So to me, that's a big step in the right direction. The other piece that I'm very uh, sort of passionate about and very pleased to share with you is that we have become an an, uh, Indigenous and homelessness Winnipeg. And we became established as an Indigenous and homelessness Winnipeg in the fall of 2018. This was done because we felt strongly if we were going to address address homelessness in Winnipeg, then we needed to become an Indigenous and homelessness Winnipeg. And this is based on our principles as well as end homelessness Winnipeg. We operate 
from Truth and Reconciliation Principles, from the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and also from the uh, inclusion of people that uh, have lived experience of homelessness as well as living the experience of homelessness in everything that we do, in all aspects of our work. We believe that it's critically important that we include those voices and we engage with them because they have the, the answers and the solutions. And one good example of that, Stuart, is the Village Project that we are now have moved forward in partnership with six Indigenous uh, agencies in Winnipeg, with Mama Wichita leading that work in Winnipeg. We've moved forward to uh, establish the Village Project at Thunderbird House, and we're very excited about that initiative because it will uh, establish 22 new low barrier units for people who are experiencing homelessness and are unsheltered. And when we began to look at that project uh, and homelessness, Winnipeg began to, uh, to look at the possibility of uh, creating uh, a village project. We, we quickly went to an elder, an elders council to consult with them. We went to five Indigenous partners to bring them on board because we wanted to ensure that they would lead that initiative and, and they would operate that village project once it's established. And we also did an engagement process last uh, summer uh, with the people living in the encampments uh, and asked them for their input and feedback in the designing of that village project. And we learned a lot from them uh, from doing that engagement process. So that speaks to how End Homelessness Winnipeg is committed to ensuring that when we roll out initiatives, we ensure that we go back to the community and engage the, engage with them and solicit their feedback and ensure that they lead that work. And that's so critically important. Important, for sure. And I would just say that one of the other parts of the UN Declaration, of course, is that housing is also a human right. And so that's another one of your guiding principles. It's very much a guiding principle. So Lucille, there's so much more to cover and uh, we will do this again for sure. I am so delighted to have spent some time learning from you. Uh, the The work that you do is is clearly incredible. And I was, uh, when we, for, before we started, I did ask you if by chance your middle name was Sharon. Yeah. And you said, yes, it is. And the reason I asked that is because I found 
with a little bit of research that uh, Lucille Bruce, who has worked with Winnipeg's Indigenous population for more than 25 years, is a resourceful, collaborative leader, proven record of producing results and greatly admired for her dedication to ensuring community development. And that shows that you were given the Sovereign's Medal for Volunteers by the Governor General of Canada. Mm-hmm. Lucille, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you do. You are um, a quiet, but you are a get it done kind of leader that we need for these challenges in Winnipeg. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. And I can't thank you enough for what you do. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit with you some of the work that incredible work that uh, is being done in Winnipeg, not just by End Homelessness Winnipeg, but by all of the services. And, uh, you know, again, it goes back to our philosophy at End Homelessness, uh, and it takes everybody you know, to to come together to collectively address homelessness in Winnipeg because it is so complex and, and you know, it's so important that uh, all of those voices are brought to the table and including our three levels of government that need to commit to this because uh, uh, unless we have a strong commitment to them, you know, to align with our goals as well, then we're going to keep struggling. But I believe we're on our way and uh, the community, we need to follow the community's direction. Right. And it sounds to me like you're doing that. And it sounds to me like there is a there is a mountain to climb here, but you're well on your way, Lucille. And again, thank you for what you do. And thank you for sharing some time with me. Thank you. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmund. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.